Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 43 and 44, various verses, so please follow along. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? And Judah said to Israel his father, Send a boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the man arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the man into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Then he commanded the steward of his house, Fill the men's sack with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to the steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When you overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. How then could we steal silver or gold from our Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say, He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lured his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do this. So only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as far as you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father should die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. 
When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back to his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Thanks be to God. Sorry about the technical difficulties, but... In spite of that, can we just give a round of encouragement to our praise team and our media team? For Yeah, these guys <laughs> were given no notice whatsoever for this mass adjustment. I didn't even know we were going to come down here until the middle of this past week. And so for us to have to scramble like this and for them to execute as well as they have is such a blessing. So thank you guys for all the amazing work that you did. So let's now bow our heads and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, we ask that as we have heard your word, that now you would speak to us by your spirit. Lord, you know the circumstances in which we have had to face, some of which involve loved ones that we are no longer in relationship with. Lord, this sermon series has been really shaping and cutting us in a way that a surgeon cuts so that healing can come. And Lord Jesus, I do pray that today's message would continue that that healing cutting that we need so that we could have restoration in relationships that you've called us to have. Father, I just pray that as we think about what these words that we're about to hear may trigger certain emotions and remind us of certain uh, circumstances that we do not want to remember, Lord, we pray that you would minister and help us to have proper perspective so that we can live out our calling of being a blessing to the world. God, we thank you so much for providing us uh, with a worship space in spite of the challenges that we've had coming here. You are faithful, you are good, and we praise you for it. And so now, Lord, would you bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, so right about now, I would attempt to give you a pretty engaging, maybe somewhat entertaining introduction in the hope that it'll keep you awake for the rest of the sermon. But given that we're in this weird space and we just read a very long passage of scripture, I'm just going to go ahead and just jump right into the message. But for those of you visiting us for the first time, let me orient you by saying we are in the middle of a sermon series entitled The Gospel in the Family Life of Joseph. And the whole point of this series is to see how the message of Christianity, i.e. the gospel, has the power to bring healing to us from all the pain and trauma that we received in the homes that we grew up in so that we can go back to our dysfunctional homes, heal those families by the power of Jesus' love for us so that through our families we can be a blessing to the world. Last week we began our discussion about how to start this long process known as reconciliation and today we're going to finish about how to complete, how to finish this process known as reconciliation. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you in today's sermon. First, we're going to talk about why reconciliation must be completed. Second, we're going to talk about what is required for reconciliation to be completed. And then we're going to end it with how reconciliation can be 
can be completed, why it must be completed, what is required for it to be completed, and finally how to actually complete it. All right, let's start with the first point, why reconciliation must be completed. Now, before I go into today's text, let me give you a quick recap for those of you visiting us so you don't get lost. Joseph was the youngest son of Jacob. And the reason why I say he was rather than he is, is because at this point in the story, we come to find he's no longer the youngest son. Yeah, we are revealed that Joseph now has a brother younger than him, a boy by the name of Benjamin. But when we first came to his story, Benjamin was nowhere in the picture, which meant Joseph was the youngest son and therefore the most favored of the sons, making him the most hated and despised of his brothers. In fact, his brothers despised him so much that they did something so despicable. Under the leadership of their other brother, Judah, they lied to their father, Jacob, saying that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. Why? So they could cover up as to what they really did to Joseph, which was sell him to a bunch of slave traffickers, Ishmaelites, who in turn sold him as a slave of Egypt. And as a slave of Egypt, Joseph goes through the painful ordeal of being falsely accused of rape, being falsely imprisoned for that false accusation of rape, where he is rotting away in one of the worst prisons of the ancient world, the prisons of Pharaoh. And yet, because God was powerfully present in Joseph's life, he was able to overcome these daunting challenges and rise to the ranks of the second most powerful position in all of Egypt, essentially becoming the prime minister, okay? And the reason why he was able to be positioned in this way is because he was the only one capable of solving a massive problem known as a seven-year famine. In fact, it was in the context of this famine that Joseph's family, i.e. his brothers, came back into his life after 20 years have passed. You see, it turns out that this pervasive lack of food didn't just affect Egypt, it affected all the surrounding nations, including the location where Joseph's family was living at the time, the land of Canaan. And when Jacob, his father, hears about this impressive Egyptian Egyptian politician able to abundantly provide food for his people, he orders his sons to go to Egypt in the hope that they can buy some grain for their starving family so that they could survive the famine as well. And so Jacob's brothers, excuse me, Jacob's sons go to Egypt and in that first reunion that they have with Joseph where they don't even know who he is, they don't recognize him, Joseph attempts to begin the process of reconciling with his brothers. How? By seeing if they're willing to acknowledge and admit what they did wrong, which they were, which they did by confessing their sins. But here's the thing. They didn't confess their sins to Joseph, but they confessed their sins amongst each other in the presence of Joseph. You see, they didn't even realize that as they're confessing their sins in Hebrew, that the person that they're confessing in the audience of knows what they're saying because it happens to be the very brother they sold in to Egypt. Okay? You see, Joseph was attempting to do the hard work of reconciling without the brothers realizing that's what he's doing, as well as them not recognizing this is their brother, which creates a real daunting challenge. How is Joseph going to finish this process of reconciling with them not recognizing him and also with him needing to send his family back to their starving children? Ah, Joseph came up with a solution. He would keep one of his brothers, Simeon, in custody, in jail basically, so that his brothers can take much-needed food to their starving families, okay? But he gives one condition in order for them to get their brother Simeon back. They must bring back the one brother that their father refused to allow to come this first trip around, and that is the brother that Joseph never knew, his younger brother, Benjamin. And so... Joseph's brother goes back to their father, Jacob, and they inform him of what this Egyptian prime minister demanded that they needed to bring back Benjamin. And Jacob responds, never, 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 never will you ever allow my son to go over there. Why does he say that? Well, 
In light of Joseph believed to be long dead, Benjamin became the new favorite of Jacob. And that was what was happening in this family. And so with all that stated, we're now ready to engage our text. So let's do that now. We're starting in verse 1 of chapter 43. We read, Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Okay, so come on back. The food that Joseph initially gave his brothers is starting to run out. And yet the famine is still going strong. And so Jacob tells his sons, hey, you need to go back to Egypt and get some more food. But when his son Judah reminds him of what the prime minister demanded, you need to bring Benjamin with you, it's at that point Jacob goes on this emotional tirade accusing his sons of, quote-unquote, treating him so badly. Now let's just pause for just a moment and ask ourselves, what's happening here? What's going on? We are seeing here, folks, of what happens when reconciliation is unfinished, when it is not complete. Let me explain. One of the things that life teaches us is that when things that need to be finished are unfinished, leads to bad outcomes. When something that must be completed is incomplete, suffering and sorrow usually results. Let me give you some examples. If you have a contractor who fails to finish building the building he was contracted to build, he is going to suffer economic sorrow, right? If a student doesn't finish their education, drops out of school, that student is going to suffer the sorrows of doors of opportunity being permanently closed. If a pregnant body fails to complete the full gestational period of a baby in the womb, that body is going to suffer the sorrow of a miscarriage. Over and over, we see this principle. When things that must be completed are not, sorrow and suffering results. And we see that principle being laid out in Joseph's family because reconciliation has not been finished. Let me show you. First, suffering. This family is clearly suffering on so many levels. First, they're suffering economically. They are not able to provide for themselves due to this massive famine. Secondly, they're suffering relationally. Can you imagine what Simeon's uh, wife, what Simeon's children must be going through as they eat the morsel of food that reminds them of where their loved one currently is rotting away? And then third, you have psychological suffering. Here is this weird Egyptian stranger who wants to get his hands on Benjamin for who knows God knows what. This family is overwhelmed with so much suffering, which segues to sorrow specifically Jacob's sorrow. You know, the text makes it clear. Jacob never really got over the loss of his favorite son, Joseph. And now with the prospects of his other favorite son being potentially threatened, taken away from him, he couldn't handle it. Now, some of you may feel bad for Jacob. You might be tempted to feel sorry for him. After all, he's gone through so much in his life. And now at this tender old age, he has to go through this nonsense. You might be thinking, oh, I feel so bad for the guy. He's such a poor victim. But I don't think we should see him like that at all. Why? Consider this quote from Old Testament scholar Ian Duguid. He says this, quote, Jacob persisted in clinging to Benjamin, even though it meant that Simeon could never return. That evaluation spoke volumes about the relative worth of the sons in their father's eyes. Actually, in all of this, Jacob was concerned primarily for himself. In spite of everything Jacob had gone through, he remained a proud, self-centered old man. What's he saying? He's saying that Jacob was not some poor, innocent victim of fate. He was not a poor sucker of bad luck. No. 
Jacob's sorrow and suffering, and hence his family's sorrow and suffering, were the direct result of Jacob's sinful, selfish behavior. And the longer he stayed this way, the longer he prolonged the unfinished reconciliation with his family and Joseph, which further prolonged the sorrow and suffering for everybody. Now, if there's any principle that we need to take away from this, it's this. The longer you leave unfinished, incomplete, reconciling with an estranged loved one, the longer you will prolong your sorrow and suffering. Let me say that again. The longer you leave unfinished, incomplete, reconciling with an estranged loved one, the longer you prolong sorrow and suffering. Okay? I know for some of you guys, God has been knocking on the door of your heart for quite some time because he is calling you to reconcile with somebody, someone that you're thinking of right now. But just like Jacob is stubbornly clinging to Benjamin, you are stubbornly clinging to something God is saying. You need to let go of it so you can be reconciled, but you refuse. Why? Because just like Jacob, you're afraid of the fallout. You're afraid of the trauma. You're afraid of what you're going to go through if you let go of what God is telling you to let go so you can be reconciled with them. But look at what's happened to Jacob by him not letting go. He's increasing the chances of his family slowly dying of starvation. He's increasing the chances of never seeing Simeon again because he's in prison. He's increasing the chances of his other sons hating him because of the fact that he is allowing their children, i.e. his grandchildren, be miserable, hungering with so much stomach pain and sorrow. By stubbornly clinging to the minor comfort of holding on to Benjamin, he was holding on to the greater sorrow, greater suffering of incomplete, unfinished reconciliation. And friends, that is the same fate awaiting all of you if you follow this same pattern. Do you see that? I hope you do. Because if you do see it, then you'll be ready to move forward in actually moving towards completion of this important work of reconciling. So let me explain how to do that by going to my next point. What is required for reconciliation to be completed? Let's read our passage starting in verse 16 of chapter 43 where it says, When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the stewards of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of the others. And they drank and were merry with him. And then he commanded the stewards of his house, fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. But then Joseph said to his steward, Up, quickly, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is this not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practiced divination? You have done evil in doing this. Okay, so come on back. So Jacob begrudgingly lets Benjamin go with his sons to Egypt so they can get more food. And the moment Joseph recognizes his brothers and sees Benjamin, he immediately begins the process of trying to finish reconciling with his brothers. How? By conducting a test. A test. What sort of test, you ask? A test to see if they truly repented for what they did to Joseph all those years ago. Look at what it says in verse 34 of chapter 43. What, is jo- uh, what does it say that Joseph did? He gave Benjamin five times more food than the other brothers. 
Now, what in the world is Joseph doing? Why is he behaving this way? Is he showing his true colors, revealing that he's no different than his wicked father, Jacob, who shows sinful favoritism amongst his family members? Is that what he's doing? No. This is the test. Joseph wants to see if his brothers would treat Benjamin, in light of him being more favored than them, the way they treated him all those years ago. See, Joseph remembers in vivid detail how his brothers responded when one of them was given way more favor than the rest. And if these brothers reacted the same way towards Benjamin's obvious blatant favoritism over them, that would tell Joseph, ah, these guys never changed. They never repented. This is why in the next chapter of verse 2, he orders his men to put the silver cup in Benjamin's belonging so that when it was discovered, discovered that Benjamin potentially stole from Joseph, these brothers had one of two options. Option number one, they could attempt to protect Benjamin even though he's more favored than they were. Or they could abandon him like they abandoned Joseph all those years ago because they're so bitter that Benjamin was more favored than they were. So here's the question. What is going to be their option? What are they going to choose? Starting in verse 14, chapter 44. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell before him to the ground. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But Joseph said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go, go in peace to your father. Then Judah went up and said to him, oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Here we see that these brothers, instead of abandoning Benjamin, go with Benjamin back to Egypt, so that they could attempt to protect him by petitioning on his behalf. This is a clear sign that these brothers changed and they repented to what they did to Joseph all those years ago. How do I know? Because look at the brother who's leading the charge. Who is the brother doing all of this? It's Judah, right? The person who led his brothers to enslave Joseph is the same person leading his brothers to save Benjamin from enslavement. See, something you need to understand about Judah is that he represents all that his brothers feel and think in this moment. How he behaves, what he says is consistent to what they would say if they were in his shoes. And so with that in mind, listen again to Judah's petitioning for his brother. He says, for your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. What's he saying? What's Judah saying? He's saying, my Lord, let me take the guilty party's place. Let me suffer the consequences for the one who wronged you. Let me be the one who suffers the penalty, the punishment for this brother of mine and let him go free and let the guilt on him be put onto me. Who is Judah sounding like? Who is he behaving like? Doesn't he sound like the person who did the greatest act of love, the greatest act of sacrifice? Doesn't he sound like Jesus Christ himself? See, Judah is showing Joseph 
that he truly repented by what he did to Joseph all those years ago, evidenced by his unwillingness to let what happened to Joseph happen to Benjamin again. What is that, folks? That is repentance. Repentance. Now, I know for those of you who grew up going to church, you've heard that word a lot, repentance. But I really doubt many of us know what it is because we let the familiarity of the word fool us into think that we know what the word actually means. And so to ensure that we're all on the same page, consider this definition of repentance by uh, Bible scholar Brian Hedges. He says this, quote, to repent is to change one mind and alter directions, to turn around and do an about face. When a rebellious human being encounters the life-transforming power of God, they change direction. Repentance always involves both turning from and turning to. Scripture speaks of turning from idols, from Satan, and from sins. But repentance also means turning to light and turning to God himself. What is repentance? Repentance is not only acknowledging your wrongdoing, it's not only confessing your sins, but it's turning away from your sins and turning to the opposite of those sins, including the sins that cause the rift in the friendship, that cause a severing in the family bond, right? Repentance is not only just saying you're sorry, it's actually showing that you're sorry by acting and thinking differently, right? And this is something that I feel you guys need to grasp because the only way true reconciliation can happen, final reconciliation can happen, is when the guilty party repents. Not just say, I'm sorry, not just to say, I promise I won't do it again, but to actually show you that they're not going to do it again. That is repentance. And this is something that many of you are not doing. When you attempt to reconcile with someone, all you say is, you know what, all you need to do is just say you're sorry. Just tell me you're sorry. Or they might even volunteer that they're sorry. I'm sorry for what I did. We're good now, right? And you think, yes, we're good. No, you're not good because that is not reconciliation. That is half hearted reconciliation that's not completed reconciliation okay if a husband is chronically cheating on his wife and always says to her i'm sorry baby i'm sorry i won't let this happen but he keeps on cheating that is not repentance okay he may have taken that first step to start reconciling with the spouse but if there is no finishing if there's no follow-through if there's no completion of true repentance there is no reconciliation christian Hear me when I say this. You cannot reconcile with an estranged loved one unless the guilty party repents. That also means you if you're the wrongful party. If you're the one who broke the fellowship, if you're the one who wronged the other, you can't just say you're sorry and expect that to be sufficient. You need to change. You need to turn away from your sins and turn towards the opposite of those sins. So that relationship can be healthy. So that relationship can be honest. So that relationship can be trustworthy. You see? Consider these words from theologian Dan Allender. He says this, quote, Reconciliation is not to be withheld when repentance, that is deep, heart-changing acknowledgement of sin, and a radical redirection of life takes place in the one being rebuked. But then listen to what he says. Nor is reconciliation to be extended to someone who has not repented. If you want reconciliation, the guilty party must repent. If the guilty party refuses to repent, it doesn't matter how much you want to, how much you wish, how much you yearn for, there is no reconciliation. It must 
not happen. Not simply that it cannot happen, you must not let it happen. Now here's the question. Why does Scripture speak so poignantly about this? Why? Well, let me answer by going to my final point, how reconciliation can be completed. Read again with me the last verse of our passage, verse 34 of chapter 44. Judah says this, For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Did you guys catch that last statement Judah says? What he's afraid of? What is he afraid of? He says, I'm afraid of the evil that would find my father. What does he mean by that? He basically saying is like, I'm afraid how my dad's going to turn out if my brother's not back with me. And notice, Judah doesn't say, I'm afraid of the depression that's going to find my father. He doesn't say, I'm afraid of the suicidal tendency that's going to find my father. He says, I'm afraid of the evil that will find my father. Why does he say that? Well, I think it's fair to say that Judah knew that his father hasn't changed. He is still the selfish, sinful man that he always was, evidenced by the fact that he's still showing favoritism amongst them, right? He's still favoring Benjamin over Judah, right? But Judah also knew that if his father was going to change, he wasn't going to change for the better. He was going to change for the worse. He was going to become more evil. This is going to be hard to hear, but I think you need to hear this. This is what you need to keep in mind. If you allow the guilty party of your estranged relationship to go without repentance, if you just give people the excuse, the past, to not need to repent, how do you think they're going to turn out? You think they're going to stay the same? No. They will turn evil. Go back to that definition of repentance that I had just a moment ago. One of the statements that the author says is that repentance is turning from sin, yes, but what else? Satan. Turning from Satan, right? What do you think would happen if a person refuses to repent? Where are they headed towards? Who are they headed towards? The evil one, right? Where they come more under his influence, where they become more under his control, where they become more like him, right? What is the most loving thing to do when an estranged loved one in your life refuses to repent? Do you just let them back into your life? No need for repentance because you think, you know, that makes it easier for them to be back into your life? What are the consequences of that? Could it be that calling out your loved one to repent is not what they say it is? Oh, you're just trying to make me feel bad. You're just trying to make me hate myself. You're just trying to win up over me. Could it be that it's actually a form of love for them because you don't want them to turn out to how they would if you just excuse their need to repent? If you're a Christian, you should know the answer to this. Why? Because you know the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the message that says God cannot tolerate people not repenting to him. Yeah, the Bible makes it clear. God cannot tolerate when people do not repent of their sins. Now, some people can interpret that as God ego-tripping. Oh, yeah, it's for your glory, right, that people repent of their sins, right? It's all about making you feel good. It's about making you make the other person look bad in comparison to you looking better than them. That's why you want us to repent, right, God? No. God cannot tolerate people not repenting of their sins because he cannot tolerate what they'll turn into if they don't repent. They will turn evil. And because God cannot stand that so much, what does he do? He comes into the world as a human being, mortal human being, Jesus Christ. Why? So he could actually do what Judah only said he would do, but never actually did. 
he would actually take the place of sinners, where he would take on the full punishment, the full penalty for your sins and my sins, everyone's sins, who trust him as Lord and Savior on the cross by suffering the full cosmic wrath of God. In other words, Jesus suffered the greatest evil done to a person so that anyone who puts their faith in him would not turn into an evil person. You see? And when you understand that, then you understand the gravity, the magnitude of God's gracious, amazing love when he calls a person to repent. When God calls a person to repent, he's not trying to squash them down. He's not trying to humiliate them. He is expressing amazing, gracious love. And that's what you need to keep in mind when you feel the Spirit of God telling you need to repent or when the Spirit of God is challenging you don't chicken out. Don't give in to fear. Stand firm. Call on your estranged loved one to repent. Because if you don't, you are jeopardizing to who they could become. Right? This is what you guys need to keep in mind when you need to do the long, painful, arduous work of reconciling with an estranged loved one. You have to start with them confessing sin, and you have to end it with them repenting of their sins. This is how true, reconciled relationships are restored. This is how love flows again because there is a bridge of trust that has been reconstructed between two people who are seeking each other out in gospel-centered love. Do you see? You know, I know for some of you right now, this sermon series has really been bothering you in a good way. I, I usually don't like it when people come up to me and say, yeah, PJ, your, your sermon is really bothering me, Right? You know, but then when you follow up, it's like, because God is telling me to do something I don't want to do. I'm like, okay, that's good. I'm glad it's bothering you, right? And it's bothered me too. Because just like you, I have people, one person in particular in my mind, that this sermon, as I'm writing it, I'm like, Jesus, why are you saying this to me right now? Right? Not just to say to you, but he's also saying it to me. Reconciliation is hard, Right? But the outcome, if reconciliation doesn't happen, is even harder to accept. This is what I'm imploring myself and imploring you to consider. If you truly love that person as you should, then do the hard work that must be required to keep loving them so that your love for them is not in vain that results in them becoming evil. This is my prayer for all of us as a congregation. This is my prayer for all of you in your relationships with your loved ones. May God give us the strength to do what we must in order to give him the proper glory and restore the people that we need to have back into our lives that God is calling us to pursue. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to really hear these words from today's message in spite of how difficult and how hard it is to hear. Father, I know there are many, if not all, in this room who are really thinking of someone right now someone who is estranged for them, someone who needs to repent. That person could even be themselves. Father, whatever it is that we are clinging to, whatever our Benjamin might be, give us the strength to let it go so that we can welcome back those who we yearn to have back into our lives. Or maybe not, but yet we know you're calling them to be back into our lives. Father, I pray for restoration. I pray for healing. I pray for humility. And Lord, I do pray for true, complete genuine reconciliation father would you help us to live out the words that your scripture teaches us so that as our families become restored and healed we can be a force of blessing in this world 
that desperately needs to see the message of reconciliation being lived out and the fruit of it being tasted by all those who are near them. God, would you hear us now for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We're now